tell God all of my troubles when I get home. Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Happy Holidays, two speeches by Frederick Douglass. Mark Twain once said to an interviewer while reflecting on his life of traveling and speaking, they say lecturers and burglars never reform. I don't know how it is with burglars, it's so long since I had intimate relations with those people, but it is quite true of lecturers. They never reform. Lecturers say they are going to leave the lecture platform never to return. They mean it, they mean it, but there comes in time an overpowering temptation to come out on the platform and give truth and morality one more lift. You can't resist it. In his prize-winning biography of Frederick Douglass, David Blight speculates that Mark Twain is probably the only competitor Douglass has for the title of most widely traveled American of the 19th century. In fact, Blight deems it likely that more Americans heard Douglass speak than any other public figure of his times. Clearly, Douglass found it hard to resist giving truth and morality one more lift, as Twain put it. We focused in our last episode on what we can learn about Douglass from his autobiographies, but it should be no surprise that his many speeches offer a further rich source for understanding his thought. Our main focus in this episode will be on two addresses delivered to mark a holiday. They are among his most famous speeches. If you come across someone quoting from a Douglas speech, it would be a safe bet that it is one of these two. Off-quoted though they may be, they are rarely systematically compared to each other. An irony emerges when we do so. In one speech delivered in 1852, Douglas speaks as an American to his fellow Americans about the most American holiday of them all, Independence Day, which commemorates July 4th, 1776, the day that 13 American colonies declared themselves free from the British Empire. In the other speech, delivered in 1857, Douglas also speaks as an American to fellow Americans, but this time about Emancipation Day, which celebrates freedom, not from the British Empire, but within it. This holiday, still recognized as one of the most important of the year in many countries of the Caribbean, commemorates August 1st, 1834, when the law abolishing slavery in the British Empire first came into effect. Hence the irony, when speaking of the American holiday, Douglas represents himself and many other Americans like him as unable to celebrate, as lacking any reason to participate in honoring this day of national freedom. By contrast, Douglas sees the holiday that commemorates a law that applied only to British subjects and non-Americans as an occasion for joyous celebration. Together, the speeches raise the questions of what holidays are for, what they might accomplish in drawing us together, and how, by marking them, we represent and understand ourselves as part of a people. It would be easy to explain the irony away by noting that the Independence Day speech was delivered to an audience primarily made up of white Americans, the Emancipation Day speech to a mainly black audience. In light of this, we might suppose that the difference between the speeches has to do simply with Douglas's membership of a particular group, namely black people. Slavery prevents them from relating to the freedom celebrated on Independence Day and gives them a reason to celebrate Emancipation Day in solidarity with the liberated black people of places like the Caribbean. But this is at best only partially accurate. For a central theme in both speeches is the importance of seeing oneself as a citizen of the world as belonging not merely to this or that nation or particular people, but first and foremost, to the human race. Let us now delve into the details of the speeches, beginning with the meaning of July 4th for the Negro. 
Douglas had been invited to give an Independence Day speech by the Rochester Ladies Anti-Slavery Sewing Society. Rochester, New York was where Douglas lived at the time, and this society had been founded not long before, in part by his close friend Julia Griffiths, a British abolitionist who had moved to the United States to work with him. She helped him with his newspaper, The North Star, and its successor called, rather less imaginatively, Frederick Douglass's paper. She also supported his move away from William Lloyd Garrison and the Garrisonians, a major source of conflict for Douglas at this time. So in this setting, the audience would have been friendly and like-minded. Yet the speech reads at points like an impassioned cry to white Americans who have never yet considered opposing slavery. Realizing this may take a little bit of the magic away from the speech as a historical occasion, but it reveals that Douglas intended to speak here to the nation as a whole. He had the address printed and sold copies of it through his newspaper and on the lecture circuit. From the beginning, this was not merely an oratorical feat, but an important moment for the development of African-American and abolitionist literature. The speech, actually delivered on July 5th because the 4th was a Sunday, begins with Douglas meditating on the relative youth of the United States, in 1852 only 76 years removed from independence. He then begins to evoke the circumstances of the American Revolution, bringing to life the drama of that period. To celebrate the revolt against English tyranny in 1852 is, he admits, quite a different thing from joining that side of the conflict in 1776. As he puts it, to say now that America was right and England wrong is exceedingly easy. Everybody can say it, the dastard, not less than the noble brave, can flippantly discant on the tyranny of England towards the American colonies. It is fashionable to do so. But there was a time when, to pronounce against England, and in favor of the cause of the colonies, tried men's souls. They who did so were accounted in their day plotters of mischief, agitators and rebels, dangerous men. The implication is that Americans of his own day who feel threatened by troublemaking abolitionists betray the legacy of troublemaking that gave birth to the nation. And he does seem happy to praise the extraordinary accomplishment of the revolution, transporting his audience back to that remarkable era by saying, The whole scene as I look back to it was simple, dignified, and sublime. The population of the country at the time stood at the insignificant number of three millions. The country was poor in the munitions of war. The population was weak and scattered, and the country a wilderness unsubdued. There were then no means of concert and combination such as exist now. Neither steam nor lightning had then been reduced to order and discipline. From the Potomac to the Delaware was a journey of many days. Under these and innumerable other disadvantages, your fathers declared for liberty and independence and triumphed. This is the kind of celebration of American glory you might expect from an Independence Day speech. But, spoiler alert, Douglas is setting up a dramatic reversal in which the hollowness of the celebration is revealed. Yet his American patriotism is not necessarily insincere. He simply wants it to be rooted in the recognition of certain moral principles that are foundational to the country's identity. He tells his audience that the Declaration of Independence is the ring bolt to the chain of your nation's destiny, and includes within it saving principles to be defended constantly. Stand by those principles, he says. Be true to them on all occasions, in all places, against all foes, and at whatever cost. He means to do more than inspire pride when he says, your fathers, the fathers of this republic, did most deliberately, under the inspiration of a glorious patriotism and with a sublime faith in the great principles of justice and freedom, lay deep the cornerstone of the national superstructure which has risen and still rises in grandeur around you. 
For Douglas, it was their commitment to justice and freedom that made their patriotism glorious. Only such commitment could make a patriotic celebration of a nation's founding worthwhile. So, the famous twist in the speech does not contradict its earlier invocations of revolutionary glory. It's precisely the distance between the America of his time and its original principles of justice and freedom that leads him to ask, fellow citizens, pardon me, allow me to ask, why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I or those I represent to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and of natural justice embodied in that Declaration of Independence extended to us? And am I therefore called upon to bring our humble offering to the national altar and to confess the benefits and express devout gratitude for the blessings resulting from your independence to us? Not long after this, he utters the simple words at the heart of the speech, This 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice, I must mourn. Further on, he puts it in the form of a question that has given the speech one of its commonly known titles, What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him, more than all other days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. Here the speech transforms into a harsh confrontation, an excoriation of the evil of slavery. In what follows, we meet a passage that is of particular interest for us, since we are concerned with what it means to view Douglas as a philosopher. It suggests that he may have been against philosophy, in the sense that he seems to regard it as being unnecessary in relation to the topic of slavery. Responding to an imagined critic who objects to his severe language, he replies, I fancy I hear some one of my audience say, it is just in this circumstance that you and your brother abolitionists fail to make a favorable impression on the public mind. Would you argue more and denounce less? Would you persuade more and rebuke less? Your cause would be much more likely to succeed. Douglas responds that argument and persuasion are not needed. What is called for is the rhetorical force of fierce scolding. But as we know from thinkers of other places and times, an example might be Al-Ghazali, who we covered when looking at philosophy in the Islamic world, it can be deeply philosophical to point to the limitations of rational argument and of philosophy itself. Douglas is in fact offering a careful and powerful philosophical case for using denunciation and rebuke instead of argument, at least in this particular context of confronting the problem of slavery in his time. Where all is plain, there is nothing to be argued, he says. So which anti-slavery principle would be in need of demonstration? Must he prove that slaves are human beings? This point is conceded already by the existence of laws that slaves are expected to obey, often under threat of punishment by death. What is this, he asks, but the acknowledgement that the slave is a moral, intellectual, and responsible being? If it is admitted that slaves are human, could the question be whether humans are entitled to liberty? But that was, of course, already declared in the Declaration of Independence. Douglas continues in this vein before concluding, At a time like this, scorching irony, not convincing argument, is needed. Oh, had I the ability, and could reach the nation's ear, I would today pour out a fiery stream of biting ridicule, blasting reproach, withering sarcasm, and stern rebuke. Since no argument is needed when all the points to be argued are conceded, either implicitly or explicitly, in the nation's legislation and founding documents, the goal must instead be to shake the nation out of its complacent hypocrisy through effective appeals to the conscience. 
Douglas therefore goes on to depict the horror of slavery vividly as only he can. He also tackles topics like the evil of the Fugitive Slave Law, which was passed in 1850 as part of a compromise with the South, and which made the North far less secure for both escaped slaves and free blacks. He attacks the hypocrisy of leaders of the church who defend slavery, saying boldly, For my part, I would say, welcome infidelity, welcome atheism, welcome anything in preference to the gospel as preached by those divines. He addresses too the question of whether the Constitution is a pro-slavery document, something he denies, emphasizing that slavery is nowhere explicitly mentioned in the Constitution. Here he disagrees with other abolitionists, including William Lloyd Garrison, and also with his former self. As recently as March of 1849, Douglas had published a reflection on the Constitution and slavery in the North Star, detailing how its implicit references to slavery should lead any reasonable person to see it as radically and essentially pro-slavery. But partially due to the influence of abolitionist Garrett Smith, Douglas changed his mind and left behind this position part of a painful and dramatic break with Garrison and the Garrisonians that led to vicious criticism on both sides in the early 1850s. Controversy over this aspect of Douglas's thought continues, actually. Charles Mills, a leading philosopher of race, has criticized this reversal by Douglas as part of his larger criticism that the 4th of July speech is simultaneously inspiring and naive. Whether or not one finds it naive, it is striking that this speech of denunciation ends on an optimistic note. Douglas thinks slavery may be ended in the not-too-distant future. He speaks of the tendencies of the age, given the shrinking of the world that was already underway in the 19th century. As usual, his words on this point are remarkably eloquent. A change has now come over the affairs of mankind. Walled cities and empires have become unfashionable. The arm of commerce has borne away the gates of the strong city. Intelligence is penetrating the darkest corners of the globe. It makes its pathway over and under the sea as well as on the earth. Wind, steam, and lightning are its chartered agents. Oceans no longer divide but link nations together. From Boston to London is now a holiday excursion. Space is comparatively annihilated. Thoughts expressed on one side of the Atlantic are distinctly heard on the other. As an example of a practice put under pressure by these developments, Douglas mentions the shaming of China over the custom of foot-binding. Slavery in America cannot long survive the glare of a world looking on with an increasing sense of disgust. Notice, by the way, that over the course of the speech, he's gone from talking about the daunting distance between the Potomac and Delaware rivers in the 18th century to speaking of the closeness of Boston to London in his own day. He ends the speech by leaving aside patriotic celebration of the American past in order to celebrate the increasing interconnections that are turning the whole world into a single community. This theme of global unity is also central to his Emancipation Day speech. African-American celebrations of the end of slavery in the British Empire were a common occurrence in the North in the decades before the Civil War. The event helped people envision a time of abolition in America. Sometimes the holiday was called West India Day, and Douglas's speech, delivered on August 4, 1857, in Canandaigua, New York, is known under the title West India Emancipation. As he gets underway, Douglas again invokes the changes brought by the 19th century. I wish you to look at West India emancipation as one complex transaction of vast and sublime significance, surpassing all power of exaggeration. We hear and read much of the achievements of this 19th century, and much can be said and truthfully said of them. 
The world has literally shot forward with the speed of steam and lightning. It has probably made more progress during the last 50 years than in any 500 years, to which we can refer in the history of the race. Knowledge has been greatly increased, and its blessing widely diffused. Locomotion has been marvelously improved, so that the very ends of the earth are being rapidly brought together, time to the traveler has been annihilated. In the other speech, we found space annihilated, here it is time. Douglas sure knows how to make the destruction of the universe sound exciting. But these technological advances, remarkable though they are, pale in comparison to British emancipation, which he calls the most interesting and sublime event of the 19th century and the triumph of a great moral principle. The continuity with the 4th of July speech is even clearer here. Douglas consistently locates the point of celebrating holidays in the cherishing of moral principles. So, he's able to wave away the objection that Americans should not be marking this British festivity. He laments even having to address this point. From the inmost core of my soul, I pity the mean spirits who can see in these celebrations nothing but British feeling. But he addresses the objection nevertheless, and in a way that may surprise us. We might assume that African Americans would want to mark Emancipation Day in order to express their sense of connection to other people in the black world. They would take special pleasure in the attainment of black freedom elsewhere, in spite of, or perhaps even because of, the enduring lack of freedom in America. But this is not how Douglas thinks about it. Instead, he argues that the man who limits his admiration of good actions to the country in which he happens to be born, or to the nation or community of which he forms a small part, is a most pitiable object. For him, Emancipation Day is not an international black holiday. Rather, the event it celebrates belongs not exclusively to England and the English people, but to the lovers of liberty and mankind the world over. In light of this thoroughly cosmopolitan outlook, it is interesting how Douglas deals with a second worry about celebrating Emancipation Day. This objection would come not from an enemy, but a friend, indeed a personal friend, one who is unjustly overlooked as a figure of 19th century African-American thought, James McCune Smith, who was born a slave in New York City, but who rose from this condition to become the first African-American to hold a medical degree. According to Douglas, McCune Smith expressed the following concern. It is said that we, the colored people, should do something ourselves worthy of celebration and not be everlastingly celebrating the deeds of a race by which we are despised. What troubled McCune Smith was not the spectacle of Americans being disloyal, but of African Americans being passive. Douglas's response has multiple layers and takes up the entire remainder of the speech, giving us some classic quotations along the way. The two most famous lines are, if there is no struggle, there is no progress, and power concedes nothing without demand. With these lines, Douglas acknowledges, in accord with McCune Smith, the need for activity on the part of African Americans. This belongs to what he calls the philosophy of reform. The activity in question would take the form of struggle and demand for change, and as Douglas says, this struggle may be a moral one or it may be a physical one, and it may be both moral and physical. Garrison and the Garrisonians promoted pacifism, but Douglas at this point felt ready to endorse both the moral force of skillful rhetoric and the alternative force of physical violence. This leads to one of the boldest moments in all of his work. He speaks of the use of violence against slavery, but begins unexpectedly with examples where the violence is turned inward, so to speak. His shocking first example is that of Margaret Garner, who killed her two-year-old daughter when she was caught while escaping. Douglas says solemnly, 
My friends, every mother who, like Margaret Garner, plunges a knife into the bosom of her infant to save it from the hell of our Christian slavery, should be held and honored as a benefactress. After another example involving suicide, he turns to cases in which violence was turned against slave catchers. The spirit of David Walker comes through strongly in this part of the speech. All this defense of resistance has not yet answered McCune-Smith's question, but it has prepared the way towards an answer. Douglas thinks that McCune-Smith missed the role of violent resistance by slaves in the West Indies in the achievement of British emancipation. There was a division of labor, with British abolitionists like William Wilberforce and rebellious slaves both having their effect. What Wilberforce was endeavoring to win from the British Senate by his magic eloquence, the slaves themselves were endeavoring to gain by outbreaks and violence. The combined action of one and the other wrought out the final result. While one showed that slavery was wrong, the other showed that it was dangerous as well as wrong. McCune Smith's objection was misplaced. In fact, to celebrate Emancipation Day is to celebrate and promote active black resistance. And in spite of his broader theme of celebrating the holiday as a citizen of the world, Douglas here embraces the connection between black Americans and black West Indians with the latter offered up as a model for the former. These speeches by Douglas are but two of a truly impressive body of work, stretching from the 1840s to the 1890s. Philosophers have begun to explore them, though much work remains to be done. Not in this podcast, though. We'll instead be continuing our journey through 19th century Africana thought with a man who was present for Douglas's West India Emancipation speech and was mentioned by name in it. As to what has been the effect of West India freedom upon the material condition of the people of those islands, I am happy that there is one on this platform who can speak with authority of positive knowledge. Henry Highland Garnet has lived and labored among those emancipated people. More irony lurks here. Garnet too was a public speaker, and his most famous speech defended a slave uprising to which Douglas strongly objected. One wonders what Garnet was thinking as he sat there listening to Douglas praise the violent resistance seen in the West Indies. Furthermore, at various points in his life, Garnet was more attracted than Douglas was to the idea of black Americans seeking freedom outside America, hence his having spent time in Jamaica. We'll understand Douglas and the political cause in which he played such a central part better once we have looked at contemporaries like Garnet and other figures we'll be covering in episodes to come, like Martin Delaney and Sojourner Truth. So, even if the fact that you're not on holiday has you feeling low, join us to learn more about Henry Highland Garnet next time here on The History of Africana Philosophy. I'm gonna tell God all of my troubles